the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. April 23rd, 2021. I should like to try an experiment and without further comment, read a few things most once counted or perhaps someday in the near future will once again count and consider classics. They speak to me just now given our two most prominent social and civic stressors, race and virus both of which I think bring us problems based on some form of abnormal psychology that alloys authoritarian personality syndrome to homicidal fantasy to paranoid personality disorder to Munchausen by proxy and racism. Hence, we end up with a country I think rightly described today by Peggy Noonan as swerving too much, a country that gets its remedies wrong that unthinkingly overcorrects because we've abandoned earlier time-tested common-sense learnings, teachings. So some readings. In 1939, C.S. Lewis gave a famous sermon, Learning in Wartime. Here is part of what he said. The war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. If men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until they were secure, the search would never have begun. We are mistaken when we compare war with normal life. Life has never been normal. Even those periods which we think most tranquil, like the 19th century, turn out on closer inspection to be full of cries, alarms, difficulties, and emergencies. Plausible reasons have never been lacking for putting off all merely cultural activities until some imminent danger has been averted or some crying injustice put right. But humanity long ago chose to neglect those plausible reasons. They wanted knowledge and beauty now and would not wait for the suitable moment that never comes. Periclean Athens leaves us not only the Parthenon, but significantly the funeral oration. The insects have chosen a different line. They have sought first the material welfare and security of the hive, and presumably they have their reward. Men are different. They propound mathematical theorems in beleaguered cities, conduct metaphysical arguments in condemned cells, make jokes on scaffolds, discuss the last new poem while advancing to the walls of Quebec, and comb their hair at Thermopylae. This is not panache. It is our nature. About ten years later, C.S. Lewis wrote this now famously revived essay. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age is the question 
of the day, and I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the, ni- in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in the Viking Age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of automobile accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, but we have that still. It is per perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull yourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pinting game of darts. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. Any microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. Close quote. In his 1950 speech accepting the Nobel Prize, William, Falk, William Faulkner spoke thusly, quote, Our tragedy today is a general and universal physical fear so long sustained by now that we can never even bear it. There are no longer problems of the spirit. There is only the question, when will I be blown up? One must now then learn the problems of the human heart. One must teach himself that the basest of all things is to be afraid, and teaching himself that, forget it forever, leaving no room in his workshop for anything but the old verities and truths of the heart, the old universal truths lagging which, lacking which any story is ephemeral and doomed, love and honor and pity and pride and compassion and sacrifice. Until he does so, he labors under a curse. Some of us refuse to accept this, for I believe that man will not merely endure but prevail. He is immortal not because he alone among creatures has an inexhaustible voice, but because he has a soul, a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. The poets, the writer's duty is to write about these things. It is, his, it is his privilege to help man endure by lifting his heart, by reminding him of the courage and honor and hope and pride and compassion and pity and sacrifice which have been the glory of his past. The poet's voice need not merely be the record of man. It can be one of the props, the pillars, to help him endure and prevail. A soul, a spirit, capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. You've heard me mention the short story Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut, first published in 1961, a few excerpts. Quote, the year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God, 
and the law, they were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right, though. April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. And it was in that clammy month, that clammy month of April, that the HG men, you know, the uh, handicapper general men, took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son, Harrison, away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very much. Hazel had perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio put in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. It would scatter the thoughts. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks, but she'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the, tev- on the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. His thoughts fled in a panic like bandits from a burglar alarm. That was a real pretty dance, that dance they just did, said Hazel. Huh? said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yup, said George. He tried to think a little about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good, no better than anybody else would have been anyway. They were burdened, after all, with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked so that no one seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face would feel like something the cat drug in. George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped, but he didn't get very far with it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced. So did two out of the eight ballerinas. Fast forward to 1983, when Ronald Reagan said this in his Evil Empire speech, quote, A number of years ago, I heard a young father, a very promising young man in the entertainment world, addressing a tremendous gathering in California. It was during the time of the Cold War, and communism and our own way of life were very much on people's minds. And he was speaking to that subject, and suddenly I heard him saying, I love my little girls more than anything. And I said to myself, Reagan said, oh, no, don't. You can't. Don't say what you're going to say. But I had underestimated him, and he went on, quote, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day no longer believing in God, close quote. There were thousands of young men in that audience. They came to their feet with shouts of joy. They had instantly recognized the profound truth and what he had said with regard to the physical and the soul and what was truly important, close quote. Finally, I offer this. Hadley Arcus was touring the Holocaust Museum in Washington and came upon the vast vat filled with shoes. He wrote, 
They were the shoes of the victims collected by the Nazis as they sought to extract anything they could use again or sell. And what came flashing back instantly at that moment were the searing lines of Justice John McLean in his dissenting opinion in the Dred Scott case. Quote, you may think that the black man is merely chattel, but he bears the impress of his maker and is amenable to the laws of God and man, and he is destined to an endless existence. Close quote. He has, in other words, a soul which is imperishable. It will not decompose when his material existence comes to an end. The sufficient measure of the things here is that the Nazis looked at their victims and thought that the shoes were the real durables. In all this, what I'm saying is let us not replace common sense with fear. Let us not replace care with paranoia. Let us not replace freedom with authoritarianism. Let us not replace equality with equity or death wishes of others. Let us not replace the class war of Marx with the race war of Hitler. Let us not replace our understanding of who we are, why we were founded, and the natural law understanding of truths and civic responsibility. Let's not replace that with rewritten history, junk thought, and the triumph of the will. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 602-508-0960 is the number. Open lines uh, Friday uh, today. Anything you want. Let's try and have a little bit of fun as well. It's been a long and serious week, and we'll deal with a lot of that um, upcoming here in just a few moments. Uh, let's see. What do I? What are we doing guest-wise today, Bill? Do we have any... Uh I think we're, uh, I think, yeah, I think we're pretty much wide open today, except for Pete Peterson, uh, who's going to talk uh, with us in, at the top of the four o'clock hour on race in America. A lot of you were saying yesterday how interesting it was that we are such a more racialized country now than we were even 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Pete Peterson is going to join us on that at 405, 406 in the next hour. Other than that, your show, anything you want to talk about, happy to, happy to, uh, Give advice on anything, just not uh, 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 medical, legal, or accounting advice. And Bill had a fun question, too, or, uh, that you wanted to pose. What was your favorite cartoon of all time? Excuse me? No. What was your favorite commercial of all time? What was your favorite commercial of all time? Well, my answer is immediately the one that probably half of you would raise your hand and answer with. And I'm ashamed to do so because it's uh, for an anti-American company now. But it's the old 1971-72 um, I'd like to buy the world a Coke commercial, which interestingly enough has some trivia behind it. You all know the new Seeker song, um, I'd like to teach the world to sing. That came from the commercial. Usually it's the other way around. If you ever hear a um, popular song in a commercial, it's because the popular song was popular. This was one of those rare cases where the Coke commercial was so popular that um, they made a, um, a hit song out of it by the New Seekers called I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing. The only other commercial I know of the truth of that is um, Crocker Bank in California, where Paul Williams wrote them a song jingle that uh, sounded so much like and ultimately also was used after it was converted 
for the Carpenters into the song We've Only Just Begun. We can uh, we can have fun with that later. Did you know I, I did want to say something um, about the week in review, though. It was, thank God, a week we got through. Weren't sure we were going to, especially with the double pressures of the Derek Chauvin verdict and, of course, the um, shooting – well, really – the shooting that uh, took place so close to it in uh, in Brooklyn Center that uh, that added to all that weight. Thank God there were no riots subsequent to the Derek Chauvin verdict. Uh, no, only one side riots, but because they perceive that they got the justice they wanted, that the system can work in their definition of the system, they did not riot. The opposite uh, side of that position is what concerns so much, which is to say, will we ever know, can we ever know, if a jury's deliberations, conclusions, and verdict emanate, come from a truly deliberative and due process, or whether they come from the threat of the mob? Because if they come from the threat of the mob, there's really no reason to even have a judicial system in America. And there's been a lot of mob violence as a result of everything attached to this case, everything attached to it. The violence of last summer, the rioting, it was kicked off by the release of this video. It was um, the cause of some 30 deaths and billions of dollars in damage. It was the cause of a, adding another horrible thing to another horrible year. And that's why I say our two stressors really are the virus and um, racism. Is there a greater stressor than either of those two things on our society right now? Call me and let me know. But the reason I'm, I'm giving this long wind-up to this point is that we now have to be on guard and very seriously concerned about the next stressor that's thrown on us, thrown on us or thrown at us, either way. The next stressor, because it can be used, we now know. It can be used now to change laws, norms, history, and it can be used to do so radically. I've always thought that the great emergency, the great next emergency or health pandemic was going to be environmental. That would be my guess. Um, there are now efforts from the Biden administration to get us to substantially reduce our carbon footprint, so much so that it would radically alter our lives in a lot of different ways. I'm going to tell you about that when we come back. But, but if it can't happen democratically or through the democratic process, think about what can be done in the name of an emergency and a health emergency. This country just showed its leaders that at least half of them are willing to become sheep once you yell urgent or falsely shout fire in a crowded theater. Because that's what that is. Don't ever forget it's falsely shouting fire that's the problem. And that is the problem because that's what the left has been doing. A lot more on this when we come back.
Is that the new Seekers? Yeah. <laughs> we'll do the Coke commercial at some point as well. Bill, on this um, climate issue that I've been talking about that I think is going to be the next uh, excuse for radical change and departure from our everyday life, there's something I didn't know existed. I rattled in my monologue. I rattled off a bunch of... Uh, different psychological terms, psychological problems, everything from authoritarian personality disorder to homicidal fantasy to paranoid personality disorder to Munchausen by proxy. There's one I left out. Did you know that this existed? I just learned of this. I'm not surprised, but did you know that um, there's climate anxiety? You did? You did not. Can you tell me what it is? Can you imagine what it is? I'm not surprised that someone invented it. Louder. Anxiety over the climate. Louder, louder. What, Anxiety what? over climate change. Yeah. And, and it manifests mostly in children, of course, because we freaked the hell out of them. What are the symptoms? Stomach aches, headaches, insomnia, and obsessive thinking. There's a big piece in the National Geographic on it. Um, <laughs> this National Geographic piece. For kids who express concern about the natural world and the animals in it, this professor says, the first step is to acknowledge their anxiety and distress rather than labeling it as something pathological. <laughs> Help your child appreciate that this is a manifestation of their love and caring and that these are normal ways of responding. They are not normal ways of responding. That there is a policy problem in the country or in the world is not normal to get stomachache, headache, insomnia, and obsessive thinking over. What was the other thing C.S. Lewis said about overthinking politics? He said politics should be thought of as medicine used here and there to solve problems here and there. A sick society must think about politics, he, he said, um, as a sick man must think much about his digestion. To ignore the subject may be fa fatal cowardice, but if either comes to regard it as the natural food of the mind— if either forgets that we think of such things only in order to be able to think of something else, then what was undertaken for the sake of health has become itself a new and deadly disease. So we've taken a problem in political science and turned it into a problem of medical science for children because they can't cope with what the adults have told them about the problem in political science climate change. But you think that's the end of it. Because what you will not ever find the end of is the things we can attach racism to. Now watch out for not just climate change anxiety or climate anxiety. Watch out not just for that, but the nexus between what two issues, Bill? What, what, what connection, what nexus between two issues is coming our way? they got to put racism in it. Yeah, that's right. Race, is, race and climate. Race and climate, yeah. Race and the environmental crisis. So we go to the Scientific American 
to read a professor writing that quote. Oh my gosh, I'm running into a break. It's 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 incredible how much gibberish and junk thought and rot can be passed off as intellectually discerning and sophisticated. That's all I'm going to say as we go into this break. When I come back, let me tell you what the Scientific American is up to when it comes to merging the issues of the environmental crisis, of course. Border's not a crisis. The environment is. The environmental crisis and race. 602-508-0960. Open lines Friday. You're not going to want to miss this. We'll be right back. What is this? Diesel, Sausalito Summer Night. And why do we have it again? I know that we've been through this. I I liked it. It's one of those classic rock songs that for some reason got lost to time, and I think it shouldn't be. Okay. All right. Did did you get a Huey Lewis song I sent you? I got that squeeze. No. That's all right. Yeah, I mean, go with that. That's fine. But there was a Huey Lewis song I sent you. I meant to send you. I don't think I did. Welcome back. 602-508-0960, The Seth Leibson Show. President Biden held a meeting with uh, leaders of other countries, a Zoom call type meeting, and I'm looking at a still shot of it now. Everyone from Russia, Putin is on there, the European Union, Canada, what's his name, is uh, Trudeau, he's there. Um, They're all there, they're all there, except one of these things is not like the other. One of these things almost doesn't belong. The um, the only world leader, the only one in this you know Zoom call wearing a mask is Joe Biden. You knew that was coming. I don't even know why he's wearing a mask. I mean, he's all alone. He's double vaccinated. He's double masked. Um, he's the most protected and tested person probably in the world. <laughs> He's got his mask on. We're going to say something. Oh, you know what we didn't do on masks? Bill Maher. Bill Maher. We never got to this, did we, Bill? Not you and I. I did a little with Llewellyn. Last week, Bill Maher has been steadily taking on some liberal shibboleths, left-wing shibboleths. Good for him. You know, I don't know if he's going to be a liberal mugged by reality, cum conservative, but um, probably not. But uh, maybe he'll stop donating to the Democratic Party. I'd, I'd take that as a victory. You want to hear him from last week on science? Listen to this. And media? Well, I think we all know if it bleeds, it leads. The more they can get you to stay inside and watch their panic porn, the higher the ratings. Researchers at Dartmouth built a database recently monitoring the COVID coverage of the major news outlets across the world and found that while other countries mix the good news in with the bad, the U.S. national media reported almost 90 percent bad news. Even as things were getting better, the reporting remained negative. And politicians, they lie because it's their nature to they don't get blamed if things goes badly. When all of our sources for medical information have an agenda to spin us, 
But what about liberals? You know, the high information by the science people? In a recent Gallup survey, Democrats did much worse than Republicans in getting the right answer to the fundamental question, what are the chances that someone who gets COVID will need to be hospitalized? The answer is between 1% and 5%. 41% of Democrats thought it was over 50%. Another 28% put the chances at 20 to 49%. So almost 70% of Democrats are wildly off on this key question and also have a greatly exaggerated view of the danger of COVID-2 and the mortality rate among children. All of which explains why today the states with the highest share of schools that are still closed are all blue states. So if the right-wing media bubble has to own things like climate change denial, shouldn't liberal media have to answer for How did your audience wind up believing such a bunch about COVID? A new report in The Atlantic says the media won't stop putting pictures of the beach on stories about COVID, even though it's looking increasingly like the beach is the best place to avoid it. Sunlight is the best disinfected and vitamin D is the key to a robust immune system. Texas lifted its COVID restrictions recently and their infection rates went down in part because of people getting outside to let the sun and wind do their thing. But but to many liberals, that can't be right, because Texas and beach-loving Florida have Republican governors. But life is complicated. I've read that the governor of Florida reads... But apparently the governor is also a voracious consumer of the scientific literature. And maybe that's why he protected his most vulnerable population, the elderly, way better than did the governor of New York. Those are just facts. I know it's irresponsible of me to say them. Look. Here's what I'm saying. I don't want politics mixed in with my medical decisions. And now that everything is politics, that's all we do. If their side says COVID is nothing, our side has to say it's everything. Trump said it would go away like a miracle. And we said it was World War Z. Trump said we should ingest household disinfectants, and we laughed, as we should, of he course. Didn't really say that. And then it turned out 19% of America was literally drenching the fruit in Clorox. That is true. And now, of course, we find out too. that all that paranoia about surfaces will bolt anyway. Yep, baloney. If you lie to people, even for a very good cause, you lose their trust. I think a lot of people died because of Trump's incompetence. And I think a lot of people died because talking about obesity had become a third rail in America. I I know you've heard me pound this fried drumstick before. But since I last mentioned it, a stunning statistic was reported. 78% of those hospitalized, ventilated, or dead from COVID have been overweight. It is the key piece of the puzzle By far the most pertinent factor, but you dare not speak its name. Imagine how many lives could have been saved if there had been some national campaign 
a la Michelle Obama's Let's Move program, with the urgency of the pandemic behind it. If the, if the media and the doctors had made a point to keep saying, but there's something you can do, but we'll never know, because they never did. Because the last thing you want to do is say something insensitive. We would literally rather die. Instead, we were told to lock down. Unfortunately, the killer was already in the house, and her name is Little Debbie. That's truly politically incorrect. That's truly politically incorrect. But it's also truly true. And uh, if you can find a few honest liberals here and there, we'll take it. We'll take it. Because they're going to quote him on something else against us. Let's just show him what his whole warp and woof of beliefs are and see if he's still quotable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I kept threatening to do this. I don't think I did get to it. So there is now, and there's help from National Geographic explaining it in depth, this diagnosis of climate anxiety, children who get stomach aches, headaches, insomnia, and obsessive thinking over the fears of climate change. And uh, they have uh, a psychologist, child psychologist, uh, offering advice in National Review. And uh, the, the advice is, is unbelievably stupid. Um, <laughs> the advice is tell, them that, tell your child that this is a normal reaction and that they're not having any feelings they should be ashamed of. Um, this is not a normal reaction. I'm sorry. Anxiety leading to stomach aches, headaches, insomnia, or obsessive thinking in children is not a normal reaction. And I'll tell you what else isn't normal, the racialization of all this. The current issue of Scientific American has an op-ed from a professor writing this on, <laughs> I was doing some research on climate anxiety. This, this turned up. You ready? Unpack this for me. Today's progressives espouse climate change as the greatest existential threat of our time. A claim that ignores people who have been experiencing existential threats for much longer. Slavery, colonialism, ongoing police brutality. We can't neglect history to save the future. I recently gave a college lecture about climate anxiety. One of the students emailed me to say she was so distressed that she'd be willing to submit to a green dictator if they would address climate change. Young people know the stakes, but they are not learning how to cope with the intensity of their dread. It would be tragic and dangerous if this generation of climate advocates becomes willing to sacrifice democracy and human rights in the name of climate change. Oppressed and marginalized people have developed traditions of resilience out of necessity. Black, feminist, and indigenous leaders have painstakingly cultivated resilience over the long arc of the fight for justice. They know that protecting joy and hope is the ultimate resistance to domination. Persistence is non-negotiable when your mental, physical, and reproductive health are on the line. So instead of asking, what can I do to stop feeling so anxious, what can I do to save the planet, people with privilege should start asking, who am I? 
And how am I connected to all this? What is my responsibility? The answers reveal that we are deeply interconnected with the well-being of others on this planet and that there are traditions of environmental stewardship that can be guides for where we need to go from here. This is from a professor at Humboldt State University. Yes, white children should be asking, who am I and how am I connected to all of this? Well, at the same time, we should tell them no need to feel anxious. Good work.